You are listening to a sermon from Linworth Road Church. For more information about Linworth Road Church, please visit www.linworthroadchurch.com. And all will be in the fellowship hall after the service. I'll remind you again, but you'll get a chance to interact some more with them. Wow, I don't know how to follow that. I really don't. I really don't. Thank you. Thank you so much. Wow. Isn't the gospel powerful and beautiful? And uh, the global church is just, what a, what a privilege to be a part of the global church, what God is doing around the world. Well, let's try to make a pivot to Luke. And um, uh, we've called this series, Luke, a gospel for everyone. And Luke paints a picture of how uh, God's covenant and God's promise is extended to all, whether to Gentiles or to women or to the poor or the social outcasts. Luke shows how Jesus' mission extended to those who were thought, previously thought, unworthy of it. We're going to be in chapter 11 this morning. It's page 870 if you want to turn there. And even though we are not yet halfway through the book of Luke, we are solidly into Jesus' final year, his third year of ministry. And he's on the way to Jerusalem. Last week, we saw just how empty religious leadership can be. The leaders rejected Jesus. Jesus had been the clearest and purest revelation that God had ever given of himself. Jesus lived and taught among these leaders. He authenticated his identity through his supernatural miracles, yet the leaders still refused to believe in him. They hid behind the invention that they still needed further evidence. And so that brings us to today's section. And I've called this message, When Religion Becomes a Convenient Alternative. And what I mean by this is, religion was a kind of deal that the religious leaders brokered. It gave them the appearance of being all in with God. Yet at the same time, it allowed them legal loopholes to essentially live for themselves. Religion has always provided a convenient alternative to a life lived selflessly for God and for others. Perhaps the same could be said of this generation of Christians. There's a lot of pressure today to not be all in for Jesus. Yet by maintaining religious appearances or by keeping religious rules, I can seemingly straddle both worlds. The words of Jesus to these religious leaders still reverberate today when religion becomes a convenient alternative. So, here's what I want to do today. Let me first give you an overview of this whole passage We're basically working on about verse 33 or 34 to the end of the chapter in chapter 11. Again, it's page 870 in the pew, the the Bible in in front of you. And then we're going to focus in on one particular section, since there's so much here. So first, look at verse 34. Let me begin the overview there. Look at verse 34. Jesus says, Your eye is the lamp of the body. And when your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But when it is bad, 
your body is full of darkness. Therefore, be careful lest the light in you be darkness. So, simple metaphor, your eye, right? Your eye is the organ that reacts and responds to light. Receiving light impacts the entire body, right? You know that well, my fellow Ohioans. For we are heading into another Ohio winter where the sun abandons us for days and weeks at a time. Jesus described Himself as the light. In other words, He illumines. He makes clear what is real. This was the very light the leaders had rejected. Now look carefully at this text. The word for healthy here implies generous. So it could read, when your eye is generous, your whole body will be full of light. Conversely, when your eye is bad or unhealthy, that word implies stingy. Thus saying, when your eye is stingy, your whole body is full of darkness. It was their stinginess that caused them to reject Jesus and in effect turn out the lights on their personal and relational well-being. Now, in the middle section, beginning in verse 37, Jesus is invited to a meal. Now, perhaps he had just spoken on the Sabbath and this was the meal following it. That's a possibility. Jesus, ever the consummate rebel against human tradition, breaks up the good times. He ignored one of their cherished traditions, the ceremonial washing before the meal. And having gotten their attention, he then launches into what becomes his most severe rebuke yet of the religious leaders. Awkward? would be an understatement for what everybody feels in this moment. He pronounces on them six different woes. Now, woe is not an acclamation that we use today as something exceptional. Woe! No, this was an expression of profound regret and grief. The word actually mixes the emotions of anger and pity. At the climax of these woes, Jesus connects the present religious leaders to Israel's history. This was not the first time Israel had rejected God's light. Beginning in verse 47, Jesus gives them like a real snapshot history. He reminds them of the Old Testament prophets. Those were God's messengers. The prophets that they honored during Jesus' time were the same prophets their forefathers killed. And Jesus says, when you reject me, you're simply following, blindly following, the exact same pattern. Look at what it says here. I think it's beginning in verse 47. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, this is Jesus, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. 
Now, why does he say Abel to Zechariah? It sounds like a monomic, right? It sounds like A to Z. Is it soup to nuts? Is that what he's saying? Not quite. But he is saying something interesting. Abel was the son of Adam and Eve, right? Abel's death was recorded in Genesis. It is the first death in the first book of the Bible, the first human death in the first book of the Bible. Zechariah's death was recorded in 2 Chronicles. At the time of Jesus, in the way the Old Testament book was arranged, 2 Chronicles was their last book. So Jesus is saying from the very beginning of God's revelation to the end of God's light, in the context of the Old Testament, you have rejected all of the prophets. Now this prophecy that he gives came true in the terrible destruction of their temple in 70 A.D. This passage closes, as you might expect, with the leaders intensifying their commitment to silence and to eradicate Jesus. So, that gives you an overview of this passage. For the remaining time now, what I'd like to do is focus on verses 37 through 44. So would you stand with me? I'm going to read this passage. And then we'll pray together. While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and reclined at the table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. And the Lord said to him, You Pharisees, cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools! Did he who not made the outside make the inside also? But give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. But woe to you Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb, and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without even knowing it. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Father, thank You for our moments this morning. We've already experienced so much. And now, Father, we pray that You would take our hearts and our minds deeper into the words of Jesus. Father, that's all we want to be remembered this morning. What we want to be central here is the words of Jesus and the expression of those words as it practically changes lives all over the world, which we are grateful for. But Father, for us who maybe need to have our eyes open this morning once again, or maybe for the first time to the grace and the mercy of Jesus, may our hearts be ready to receive the very words of Jesus this morning. It's in His name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, you can be seated. All right. So, I'm going to give this morning now three observations about this. Three observations on these verses. And three applications. Okay? Three things we observe. Three things to apply. You ready? Here's the first thing. Religion can be blinding. Religion can be blinding. Now, so as not to be confusing, I want to make sure you know I'm using the term religion here in a narrow sense. 
If we were to compare religion with atheism broadly, we would focus on the benefits of religion. We did that several weeks ago. But religion can also be defined more narrowly and negatively as activity that presents us from relating honestly to God. That's the way I'll be using that word religion this morning. Now, being religious can be very dangerous. For one reason, religion can be blinding. There is absolutely nothing worse than self-deception. If you are driving south, and you think you're driving north, and you cannot be convinced otherwise, despite what the signs say, despite what your friends say, you're in a terrible place. You are disconnected from reality. Religion is the strongest force in the world that can make us think that we're actually doing better than we really are. Especially if we have a mechanical, check-the-box type of religion. In check-the-box Christianity, for example, I am doing okay with God as long as I check the boxes. Go to church? Check. Give my tithe? Check. Read my Bible occasionally? Check. Pray before a meal? Check. Serve at the soup kitchen once a week? Check. Eat at Chick-fil-A? Check. (laughs) Going to heaven? Of course. I am religious. Religious activity can blind us to our real condition. Religion invites us to focus on externals that are easily measured and praised by others. This is the exact kind of religion Jesus warns against. A mechanical, check-the-box Christianity does not bring authentic change. For the Pharisees, they long for prominence, fueled by the competition between one another. All their religious activity, all their Bible knowledge, which was vast, did nothing to uproot that longing. The outside appears transformed. It even wows others, but the inside remains untouched. It should be clear from this that rules do not change you. So number one, religion can be blinding. Let's look at a second observation. Secondly, Religion shrinks your vision. Jesus argues here that it is the inside that matters. Didn't God make them both? Notice Jesus likens the inside to being clean. That's interesting. Uh, In the NIV in verse 41, it's a little clearer. It says, be generous to the poor and everything will be clean for you. It's interesting. Be generous to the poor and everything will be clean for you. Is this word a Is it a play on words? Is it a pun from what he said earlier about cleaning the outside of the dish? Perhaps it is. It wouldn't be above Jesus to use a playful word or to use a pun to make his point. He often did it. Well, Whatever he's doing, without doubt, he is speaking their language. The Pharisees were obsessed with cleanness. Old Testament laws prescribed specific Cleanness laws are what we call purification laws. These laws focused on physical, tangible objects such as 
the clothing worn for worship. When an unstained, clean piece of clothing was worn by the worshiper, it helped her to reflect on the cleanness or the purification of her heart. It was not about fashion. It was not about laundry. It was about reflecting on the purity of the heart. But the Pharisees turned these cleanness laws upside down. What began with an original vision of purifying the heart was lost on them. In their zeal, they overreached and they became obsessed with avoiding external contaminants. Certain foods, work on the Sabbath, avoiding pagans. All of that would pollute them, making them spiritually stained or unclean. If they were to contaminate themselves by eating with a Gentile or breaking a ceremonial washing rule, they would invite a torrent of shame and rejection from their peers. So obsessed with enforceable behaviors, what they did was they added inference after inference to the original. So basically what you had was the Old Testament law. And they said, well, if, the old te- if that's true, then this inference must also be true. First layer, second layer. And then, well, if this is true, then this also must be true, an inference. Third layer. And if this is true, then we also must also do this. Fourth layer. And by the time they get up here, the original meaning has been totally clouded and lost. And of course, all of their rules comprised a very tight little logical circle with all the pieces fitting together and interlocking. The only problem was their circle was way too small. As they hyper-focused on minor things, major things like justice to the poor and love for God fell by the wayside. The washing rites that Jesus ingloriously broke were not actually in the Old Testament, but were part of these endless additions and calculations. What these Old Testament laws pointed to was giving your whole heart and whole life to God, just like we sang earlier. There's a fancy word that Christians use called consecration. That's all that simply means. is giving the whole of my being and the whole of myself to God. That's the major. But what religion does is it shrinks your vision and you end up majoring on the minors. Look at the example Jesus gives here. Another example is tithing. Giving a percentage of your income. Literally 10% to God. The Pharisees would not accept or eat anything that had not already been tithed on. And they themselves tithed on the smallest item. And Jesus says, you've done this, yet look at what you've missed. You've missed the larger target. You missed the most important thing. Notice Jesus doesn't condemn the behavior. He actually says, keep doing the behavior. And it's interesting, you find this dynamic both in the church world and the secular world, this dynamic. Listen. Some people say that only your behaviors matter. Some people say only your behaviors matter. It doesn't matter what you think or feel or believe. It doesn't matter what your motives are. 
Other people say that it's only your, uh, it's only the, uh, what's on the inside that matters. What you feel or what you think or what you believe. Your observable actions are meaningless. Jesus confounds both. <laughs> he says, don't give up on the behavior. But as you do the behavior, connect it to the right foundation. Connect it to its original purpose. The sacrifice of giving, for example, should draw you close to God. Your giving should bring aid to the poor or justice to those who are treated unjustly. Your giving should bring wealth and resources to the, where there is spiritual poverty, where there are spiritually lost human beings. But see, what religion does is it shrinks your vision. It can blind you to your true condition, and religion can shrink your vision. Let's look at the third observation now. And that is that lack of concern for the poor is no small thing. Lack of concern for the poor is no small thing. How does, remember here, we have to just take a moment on this. How does Jesus define the poor? When we think of the poor today, our grid is only the physically impoverished. And certainly it includes that in Jesus' world. But for Jesus, the poor also means the spiritually impoverished. Very simply, those without the gospel. Jesus is concerned for the whole person. And a lack of concern for a person's spirit or a lack of concern for a person's body reveals that something is wrong with our hearts. For Jesus, love for Him and concern for the poor can never be separated. Our heart for the poor is like a compass. And when it is pointing north, it indicates we recognize the grace that we have received. We recognize the grace that we have experienced. The experience of God's grace and love transforms a stingy heart into a generous heart. On the other hand, religion demands self-effort. So the experience of grace is neither required or needed. To ask for grace is unthinkable since it is to admit failure. So for the religious, their attitude towards the poor, spiritual or religious, I'm sorry, spiritual or physical, let me say it again. So for the religious, their attitude towards the poor, spiritual or physical, is measured by the measure they use for themselves. That is their only currency. And rather than categories of grace and love, the religious person only has the categories of the deserving and the undeserving. Lack for, of concern for the poor is no small thing. And yet that's what religion creates, what religion produces. So, religion can be blinding. Religion shrinks your vision. And the lack of concern for the poor is no small thing. Three observations we see from this passage. Now, let's move into three applications. Number one, how do we apply this? Number one, pay attention to the inside. 
Behaviors matter. And so does the heart. The reason we do things. The beliefs and the attitudes and the motives behind what we do. And this morning is a great time to ask yourself the question, is Jesus at the center of my heart? Or is Jesus just one of many equal parts of my life? Is Jesus just another resource in my life to help me accomplish my, my agenda? If Jesus is just one of many equal parts of your life with self still sitting in the center, then your relationship with Christ will eventually turn into a, a religious check-the-box mentality. Religion will be a convenient alternative to you to being all in. Imagine your life as a pie. All right? Imagine your life as a pie. Okay? The pumpkin pie there. Thanksgiving coming up. Pumpkin or pecan? Which is it? Pecan. How about pecan, right? Pecan. Pumpkin? All right. That's close. Yeah, somebody got it. Both. Both. So imagine your life as a pie. Okay, no, not that pie. Think of your pie as a chart, a pie chart, all right? The pie is cut into eight pieces. Each slice represents a part of your life. One part vocation, one part friendships, one part marriage, one part family, one part hobbies, one part spiritual activities, etc., etc., etc. Now, within the big pie, all right, so you got, you got that in your picture, eight slices, evenly, evenly sliced. Inside the big pie is a smaller circle around the center of the pie. A smaller circle. And the whole pie is affected by that inner circle. We'll call it the heart of the pie. This is where our motivation comes from. This is what provides the fuel for my life. And for some Christians, self still remains at the heart of the pie. And all the slices of my life exist to serve my material, my relational, or my status goals. You see, Jesus points to greed as the motivating factor for the Pharisees. That was the center of their pie. But how about for you and me? What is the center for us? Do all of the slices of your life find their meaning only as they exist to further your need to consume, your need to own, your need to be gratified? You see, if greed in any iteration exists in the center of your pie, of my heart, then my religion will turn to rules. Rules that cannot change me. You know, Jesus, in producing or pronouncing these woes, he sounds like the Old Testament prophet Amos. Maybe he was thinking about this passage. Written hundreds of years before Jesus, in a materialistic age, much like ours, Amos wrote this about how God felt when His people played the game of religion. This is in Amos 5, verses 21 through 24. God says through Amos, I hate, I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. 
Take away from me the noise of your songs to the melody of your harps. I will not listen, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Powerful words. Powerful words. Now imagine a second pie. All the same slices. All the same aspects of life. But now at the center of that pie, Jesus Christ sits, and all the slices of my life exist to serve and to please and to know Him. My possessions, my money, my hobbies, my relationships, my vocation, my sexuality, all exist under His lordship for His glory. I live to worship Him. He is the motivating fuel of my life. And when we give Him the leadership of our life, His Spirit works inside of us. It's as if, if our life is a pie, it's as if He's bringing a light to every inch and corner of that pie. And everywhere He goes, He brings His life. He brings His light. He slowly cleans up the messes. He brings His blazing light into the impurities of our life, purifying us filling us with His goodness, which is the desire to do good, the power to be good, so that goodness is not something we wear like a costume or something we fake or is mere politeness, but goodness oozes from a spiritual life connected to God. Have you given Him control of your life? Are you all in? Or is Religion just a convenient alternative for you. Right, that's one. I got to keep going here. Number two. Another application from this is be careful not to put up appearances. Be careful not to put up appearances. It is tempting, isn't it, for all of us to come to church with a smile on our face to keep up appearances, to answer questions at life group. To come forward to receive communion. But inside, we're hurting. Inside, we're suffocating with guilt from a moral failing. Or inside, we're grieving a painful loss. And afraid or struggling with shame, we continue to go through the motions. Functioning outside, but inside dying. This too can take a great vibrant faith and turn it into a monotonous religion. You see, God provided the church. And God has made us to live in relational community. And we were never meant to carry burdens alone. We weren't meant to put up appearances. Look at Galatians 6, verse 2. Paul said to carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. Paul gives us a clear view of this dynamic community in the verses surrounding this verse. And Paul says in so many ways in this passage, he says we can't fix one another's problems. When you have a problem, I can't take over it. When you have a problem, I can't solve it for you. You've got to solve it. You've got to solve it with God's help. At the same time, I can come alongside of you and help you carry it. 
and make the load not as heavy. If you carry something alone, if you're carrying something alone, it will feel a thousand pounds heavier than it needs to be. You can barely move. And when you invite someone else to help carry that burden, when you ask for help, it makes the load feel so much lighter. But the first step is to be willing to admit, I'm not okay. I need help. If I could just share a a, a little piece of my life, a little slice of my life for a moment. I find that this is and has been and continues to be challenging for me. It is not necessarily natural to pay attention to one's own needs. Number one, spiritual and emotional needs are difficult to see. They're difficult to understand. They're difficult to discern. If you have a physical need, most physical needs are fairly easy to diagnose and to share. But emotional and spiritual needs are harder, aren't they? And then secondly, what I have, what I have discovered, what I've discovered is I really have to make a mental shift from my normal operation. Here's what I mean. Part of the challenge of leadership and especially Christian leadership is that you are, feels like anyway, you're always in the place of primarily meeting the needs of others, of being responsible for others, of counseling others, of resolving conflicts for others, of holding others accountable. And the need to be constantly, the the drive or the, the, the function to be constantly meeting the needs of others can deflect from understanding your own needs. And for myself, I find that I must make a mental shift, almost like I'm changing clothes, to put myself in that posture of receiving and inviting others in to my life. You know, what adds to this, particularly for Christian leaders, is Christian leaders can think they're particularly susceptible to believing that they must have all the answers. And if I could say so, church members often think wrongly that their leaders They believe their leaders must have and do have all the answers. Neither is true. So all that tends to make Christian leaders unaware or not open about their inner needs. I think this is one reason, friends, we've experienced and seen so many failures of Christian pastors and leaders. Something that is a great source of grief and mystery, really, to to many of us. Again, for me, with the Spirit's help, I find that I must make a mental shift. I must focus away from being only the strong one, the responsible one, the need meter. Need, it's not a word, but I made it up. <laughs> and to consciously focus on paying attention to my inside, my own needs, relational, emotional, spiritual, and let others in. Let them in. Now, I share this for a couple of reasons. One, just so you know me a little better and what, 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 again, those particularly in Christian leadership go through. But, but also, this is not unique only to Christian leaders, is it? It's not unique. Parents, parents experience this. Marketplace leaders experience this. If you are a person, and many of you are, if you are in a people-centered caretaker vocation like nursing or like teaching, you experience you can experience this. 
The tendency to say, I don't have needs. The tendency to say, my needs don't matter. Do you know that, friends, that one can only live for so long like that until they burn out or until something blows up or mournfully you do something terribly off track in a failed attempt to jumpstart long ignored feelings. Jesus urges us not to put up false appearances. Jesus urges us to live in honesty, not only to Him, but to live in honesty with our relational community. It is that community He gave to heal us and to make us whole human beings. It's a beautiful, powerful thing. Third application. Third application is you must crucify your greed. So we must pay attention to the inside. We must be careful not to put up appearances. And thirdly, we must crucify our greed. For the Pharisees, their possessions, their lack of concern for the poor, revealed that the love of God and the grace of God had never flooded their hearts. Many occasions Jesus said, like, your heart is far from the love of God. Like, your heart has no connectedness to God's love, to the experience of God's grace and God's love. And do you notice the antidote, which is awfully confusing? Jesus says to fix this, he says to be clean, be generous to the poor. Man, Jesus, that's confusing. Does that mean they were saved and forgiven by doing good works? Does that mean that they were saved by works righteousness, by their generosity to the poor? No. Jesus is doing something amazing here, I believe. He is fusing right theology with right behavior. As if they are one. He fuses right theology, right thinking, with right behavior as if they are one. He is indicating that what he is indicating what will happen to the inside when you finally grasp that you are not saved by what you do or works righteousness. He is indicating what will happen when you recognize that you are the undeserving one, not somebody out there. Then and only then are you prepared to receive His grace. When grace is received, when grace is experienced, and again, friends, believe, you know, I, I, I hope this morning you're not saying in your mind that, well, I'm saved and I get this. No, I don't believe in works righteousness. I'm saved. I, 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 I get this. I'm not religious. And I get that can be true. But recognize for a lot of us, this is a spectrum. It certainly includes a one-time involvement with the grace of God. But as we live out our Christian life, we find that we keep going back, we keep defaulting to actually believing in religion, to actually becoming religious. So I'm not just talking about somebody who's never experienced the grace of God who's very religious. I'm talking to all of us to whom we tend to default to a works righteousness way of thinking and seeing the world. He is indicating what will happen when you recognize that you are the undeserving one. And it certainly happens once when we receive Jesus, 
But doesn't it continue to happen? As the grace of God renews us in our lives. When grace is received, then the former filter by which you formerly saw people, you used to see people in the categories of the deserving and the undeserving. When you experience God's grace, that melts away. As His goodness floods your heart, and a genuine concern, a genuine love for others permeates your entire and your whole being. Friends, that's when change, that's when change really begins to happen. This grace was seen so clearly through Jesus' own crucifixion. That's where we see the best example of this grace. His death was on my behalf. His death was on your behalf. To pay the price, the debt we owe to God, to pay the price for our pretense, to pay the price for every time we've worn that mask, to every time we've not been honest to God, to every time we've not been honest in community, to every time we've worn appearances, Jesus Christ was rejected, denied, betrayed, and forsaken by everyone. He paid that price on His person. While dying on the cross, He said to the Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Can you affirm in your heart this morning this prayer? And maybe you'll pray it for the first time, or maybe you'll pray it for the hundredth time. But can you confirm, affirm in your heart this prayer, Jesus Christ, if you did all for, my, all for my sake, then I can trust and put myself into your hands for your sake. Jesus, here I am. Here I am. Amen. Amen. Nick, you can come up. Nick and Faith, come on up. We're going to take communion to celebrate Jesus' death and His resurrection this morning. This morning, as we take the bread representing Jesus' body, as we take the juice representing His blood, this morning what I would urge our confession to be this morning is to say, Jesus, here I am, all of me. Here I am. Here I am. Let that be your confession. Let that be your confession of faith this morning. Jesus, here I am, all of me. All of me. When the ushers release you, go ahead and take the bread and take the juice and take it back to your seat. I'll come back up in a few moments and we're going to take it all together. Again, this is an opportunity for all of us, uh, regardless of your a denominational background or church background, for all of us who confess Jesus Christ as Lord, you are welcome to come to the table and to receive the elements of the bread and the juice. Let me pray. Let me pray for these elements. And commit them to, his, to Him. Father in heaven, thank you for the bread, your body, and thank you for the juice, your blood, given in our behalf to wash away all of our impurity, to make us clean. In Christ's name.